Hi, my name's Nick Wood, Head of Investment Fund Research at Quantachieviot. Welcome to the latest edition of the Fund Buyer, a podcast for all things related to the world of fund research. And today uh, is our second of our on-the-road episodes as we tour Asia in search of insight, new ideas, and a greater understanding of the true realities of the region. Um, I'm joined again by Carly Morehouse, who leads on Asian Emerging Markets, and she's going to be sharing her insights today. So um, on to our second episode. We've, ju- we've just finished up in uh, Hong Kong. Um, another set of meetings with fund managers, with companies, uh, and with other market participants. So initial thoughts. Well, um, I'd say it's, de- it's definitely a lot more expensive than Tokyo and more than London, actually. Um, what I found most interesting is that it sudden- certainly doesn't seem to be a place that has dramatically changed with uh, the, the, with Chinese crackdowns, which is, is the impression one might have had sitting in London when the demonstrations were happening in, in 2020. Obviously, a huge caveat here that um, we've uh, we've only been here for four days. Um, I'm sure we aren't sort of picking up all the, the nuances, but it, it's very busy. Life's definitely carrying on a pace. There are also a lot of uh, tourists from uh, mainland China, whereas they seemed almost entirely absent from, from Tokyo. Um, anecdotally, we've heard that some people that moved to Singapore post the demonstrations are beginning to return. Um, and we've also spotted, uh, uh, as we came in, Hong Kong Airport undergoing a, a huge um, expansion. So I guess that really reflects the, the confidence in the, in the future here. So um, on to the investment insight. And I think it's fair to say China's really been at the heart of every discussion here in Hong Kong. So Carly, um, perhaps you can uh, share what we heard and, and your thoughts. Sure. So for the most part, people are still quite cautious on the Chinese economy. However, they highlighted that we are starting to see signs of stabilization in the economy, which is clearly a good thing. And many think we are nearing the bottom. However, no one could deny the fact that, you know, the weakness of the property market isn't having a big impact. So a lot of Chinese people's wealth is held in property. And for decades, the property market's only gone up, making it up until now a safe and and very attractive investment. However, with property prices falling and and developers really struggling, the worry for buyers is that they don't get the properties that they bought off plan, which is obviously a very scary concept. So as people see their wealth, um, which as I said, is, is held in property, continue to fall, many understandably don't want to spend. And with the economy also in a fragile state, the impact this is having on consumption is evident. And more and more we heard the term down trading, where the term premiumization once was. So instead of paying up for more luxury items as disposable incomes increase, today people are doing the opposite. They're much more conscious of what they are spending and and while they haven't stopped buying things completely, they would rather buy the cheaper option now, which wasn't the case pre-COVID. Nonetheless, as I said, managers were more positive than they have been and, and they believe that the economy is starting to turn. Valuations are clearly still very attractive and there are pockets where they can find a lot of opportunities still. There was certainly no debate as to whether China is uninvestable or not. As the world's second largest economy, they all argued that China can't be ignored. However, the need to be much more aware of macro factors like um, like policy, for example, is crucial when investing today relative to, say, three years ago. Thanks. Yeah, no, I agree with that. One, maybe one counterpoint, uh, one interesting thing that we, we did keep picking up was the consistent trend uh, from 
those investors we met who, who mentioned actually US investors really reducing their exposure and, and, and that's certainly affecting some asset managers quite significantly. Um, we've also been asked in numerous meetings what, what our view on um, EMX China funds are. So that's clearly an area gaining quite a lot of traction, uh, I guess, setting sales teams' minds uh, whirring. Um, just for what it's worth, I, I, I personally think that by the time any of these are really are up to scale and with you know requisite sort of track records, you might say China m- may once again be be more loved, and, and the moment uh, might have passed. Um, but uh, but we'll see on that. Um, you know, perhaps by then allocators will 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 actually want a separate China allocation anyway. So you know, it, EMX China may may well sort of continue to be something that, uh, that that's growing. Um, there's of course, I mean, there's of course the much more bearish. Um, stance which uh, Carly you just commented on that can you avoid China altogether and, and neither of us uh, are of that view but um, you know perhaps at the moment there are uh, there are a few that are thinking that way. So on the trip we like to see a real range of investors and, and among our meetings this time we met with um, two domestic uh, Chinese asset managers. Um, asset management in China still really in its infancy given it, it only really came into existence in the late 90s. Um, however the way most managed money is is much more short term fo- focused in, in in part due to the demands of retail investors who um i guess you would say a a very flighty investors really sort of chasing performance is my understanding that leads to very high turnover of of you know 500 to 1000% in, in in many cases from those uh, underlying asset managers however uh, interestingly of the two we met i mean one was um, very much moving towards what, what I'll describe as uh, sort of uh, Western standards in terms of sort of lower turnover, longer term um, uh, focused approach, whilst the other one certainly seemed to be a lot more tempered. So it'd be really interesting to see how uh, this develops. We also heard a lot about ESG and impact in China. So um, Carly, perhaps you, you could share some thoughts there? Yeah, we had some really interesting discussions on ESG, actually. Firstly, about the misconception that Chinese companies don't care about ESG, because that isn't the case. Um, I think when using third-party data sources, um, you need to be aware that often a company can be marked down because of inadequate disclosures. But this doesn't mean that companies aren't doing certain things, which is why engaging with companies in this part of the world is so important. You know, helping them to understand the types of things investors are interested in and what they want to see. Um, many find it's difficult to assess their individual impact on a company, though, through engagement as it is a collective effort. So, you know, if four, five, six investors that companies speak to all discuss ESG and are engaging on important topics with these companies and their management teams, it becomes much harder to ignore. We also heard how Chinese regulators are actually quite positive on ESG, which is is definitely not the case in, in all parts of the world. Um, They're also encouraging companies to disclose what they're doing with regards to sustainability within their reports. Um, And and there's a mix with regards to how Chinese corporates view and approach ESG. But the view is that it's it's overwhelmingly negative, um, but that's not the impression that we got at all. Finally, we talked um, about how important it is to, to look at ESG in emerging markets and places like China, predominantly because of the impact that this has. So for example, Given that EM has some of the highest emitting countries in the world, helping to enact change here can have a much more profound effect on global emissions than, say, focusing on companies in Europe. 
Thanks. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, so we are heading to the end of this episode and our time in Hong Kong. Um, as ever, we pick up all sorts of random facts in our meetings. And um, I think one of my favorites and one that seems very appropriate was that the Chinese drink just 12 coffees per year on average, although um, that's remarkably up fourfold in recent years. Um, feels like we've been getting through that many in just a couple of days, if I'm honest, with the uh, the number of meetings we've been uh, having. Um, we also heard about the latest innovations, and I'm going to stick with coffee here um, because it was one of the oddest that I've heard. Um, coffee with cheese on top. So I don't know if any of you fancy that for your uh, uh, your elevenses, but uh, I can't quite get that concept uh, uh, in my head. So we'll see if that uh, uh, see if we can find that in uh, in London. But that uh, seems to be a, a new innovation over here, um, not top of my to do list, I'm afraid. So um, our third and final destination is um, Singapore. Um, Carly, thoughts on our next stop and meetings? Yeah, I think um, very similar to, to what we've been doing in Hong Kong, really. So no company meetings in Singapore, but actually quite a few India fund managers are based there. So you know, while the focus in, in Hong Kong has overwhelmingly been China funds, it's mostly India funds on, on the agenda for Singapore. Um, as I'm half Singaporean, I'm obviously biased, but it is such an amazing place. And yeah, I, I can't wait to get back and, and see what it's like on the ground, see what's changed, if anything, and of course, eat some incredible food. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to that. Um, well, great. We will leave it there. Um, as ever, thanks for listening and stay safe.